Hey, boys and girls, welcome to what is decidedly not the very 11th episode of What's the Story. We're going to get to that one next week. This week, we're going to do a little bit of a bonus episode on this show. Not an official episode, but a bonus episode. Um, we had to postpone because um, life is full of plot twists um, and... Kayla Kennedy, unfortunately, is experiencing one of her own, um, so she wasn't up for recording, um, she wasn't up for recording today, we normally get together on Wednesdays to do this, uh, but she did offer to go on Friday, and, uh, I just feel like we can, we can let her have a week off. She works too hard anyways, and also, um... I don't want to say too much about what's going on, uh, but I know that uh, what she's going through right now is difficult, um, and I know that it's uh, never fun. Um, I've talked before about uh, endings on the show, uh, and and endings are important for story and uh, useless in real life. I don't enjoy endings in real life. Um, that being said, uh, I didn't want to leave you guys with nothing this week, and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do, what I would talk about, um, and I remembered that I have a short story that I have... I, I did submit it to a publication, and I got my first rejection letter, which is a mark of pride for me. They at least thought enough of me to tell me no, which is, you know, that that's high praise in my book. Um, but I do, I, I, I have it and I want to share it. Um, it would have been nice if it could have been sharing in a published form. I'm still going to try to publish it, but I thought it might be fun to perform it, uh, just read it to you guys and, uh, you know, see how that goes. Uh, so I have no idea how long this episode's going to be. Um, this is just a bonus episode, just something to whet your appetites uh, until Kayla and I get back to it. Um, so we're going to jump into that uh, in just a moment. Uh, this episode is presented ad-free. So, yeah. Ready? We're going to get started. Hang on. Have Not is written and narrated by Ron Beek III. The people around me are my friends, or at least most people would classify them as such, and I'm quite sure that they themselves may even believe it too. We sit around a large table on the far side of a favorite local Chinese restaurant, there's laughter and happy banter from most of the people at the table. Actually, all of them but me. Here, in the middle of dinner, I am becoming aware of a terrible nausea that is causing my stomach to roll like an antelope in the tremendous jaws of some overpowering crocodile. I feel ill, and I think I know why. These nights are planned with each other, I think, as a way to break up the monotony of our individual lives. 
The results are mid-wing at best. Somehow these events have too, in tragically ironic form, become monotonous, painful even, quite painful. Sometimes I feel like the only thing that ever really changes between the people at this table are our roles amongst the pack. For instance, last time it was Stephen with the cheating ex, now Samantha. Interpersonal musical chairs. My role, however, stays consistent, a mathematical constant. I'm beginning to think that here is no longer a place I want to be. I ordered salmon. Haven't a clue why. I don't like fish. I don't know. I'm bored. Wanted to try something different, or at least I thought I did. I haven't even touched it when I excuse myself from the table. I plan this act as something of a surprise move or a sneak attack, so abrupt that no one will notice, but unfortunately my fellow diners do, and prod, they too do. Hey, buddy. Where are you going? It's Ryan Cooper. His tone grates on me. It feels condescending, like it is meant to embarrass me. This, on its own, wouldn't bother me, but it's coupled with the sight of his girlfriend, Jamie, leaning in, resting her head on his shoulder. She has truly beautiful eyes, blue and soft and gentle. Her hair is an incredible golden blonde. It catches light in such a way that once or twice this evening I've had to look away from her, finding the shine too painful. Ryan is a schmuck, and she has somehow not noticed. He touches her, and I hate him a little more every time he does. Even more, now, as a smirk crosses his face. I'm using the restroom, Ryan. I lie. Condescension in my words as well. The others look at me like I started it. Is it me? Doubtful. I'm not making up adversity. I'm a perfectly good liar, but that doesn't save me. I'm planning to exit the restaurant and, in so doing, find myself walking away from the direction of the bathrooms. Ryan points it out. What are you, pissing in the bushes? Everyone laughs. Jamie's giggle somehow pierces up over the roar of it all. I feel like I die a little more every time I am with these people. I wish I could disappear. My wife has reached some kind of critical point, like it's coming to a boil. A constant and piercing state of stagnation has taken hold, and I truly wish to no longer be a part of it. As I walk toward the exit, I silently hope that my unusual behavior may cause some intrigue later. I hope they wonder where I went. I decide that if they ask me, I'll tell each of them a different story and wait for them to compare notes. What a gas. I exit the restaurant, and when the wintry air hits my face, I finally remember my coat. It's draped over the back of one of Emperor Chun's many chairs. Emperor Chun, the man that brought trans fats to the plebeians. I decide that, despite the sub-zero temperatures out here, I will not be going back in for it. The thought of one of those phonies realizing that I am going outside and taking the opportunity to join me causes a fiery rage of anxiety to shoot through my veins. It's so hot that I am pleasantly surprised to find myself temporarily warmed. 
The air out here is crisp, sharp even. All along the horizon there rests a crimson strip, the last glimpse of a tired December sun. It smells like snow, but I'm sure it wasn't in the forecast. The wind picks up and urges me across the parking lot towards the street. Even as I find myself pushed along, I think of my coat. I'm second-guessing retrieving it, but I quickly remember the horror of one of the people inside trying to come with. It's the last thing I want, and so I drop the thought. I gaze outwards to the west, my thoughts on what I do want. Emperor Chun's grill and lounge is bathed in a pink neon and is built to look like something of an ancient temple. The contrast of this faux-old architecture with the neon lighting is jarring, but only at first. It eventually turns into something you can actually admire, that synthesis of old and new. It's situated at the top of a small hill off of a major route. Despite it being more or less a freeway, there are stores up and down both sides of it. Cars trying to turn into and out of those establishments cause the cacophonous sound of desperate screeching tires, those skidding to a stop in a panic, and those anxiously skipping across pavement as they try to get up to speed. I stare down the highway, and I see those stores. Early December means they will all be busy, but at least they will be filled with people who don't know me. It's better than spending one more moment with people who do, and that's reason enough to leave, coat be damned. The wind pushes me out towards the roadway, and I escape the possibility of being found leaning against the side of tunes. I'm grateful for wind that guides me out across the parking lot. I happily let it steer me. My plans seldom work out, so I take great comfort in letting something other than me take responsibility for my actions, and I assume the eventual blame. I always get blamed. It pushes me to the motorway, and then, with some force out into it, headlights splash onto my form and I close my eyes, filled with hope. But... Tires that slide across icy asphalt never make it to me. I am allowed to continue across the road even as I hear the sound of Jingle Bell Rock fade in with the rolling down of a car window before being quickly overpowered by the booming voice of the driver inside. He hurls furious obscenities at my back. Then the song returns, fades out. The melody puts a spring in my step. I breathe in the smell of snow. It wasn't in the forecast, and I wish I had my coat. The wind is merciful and guides me to the door of a consignment shop. As I arrive, my body weight presses against it and the door gives way. As it does, I wonder how exactly this tiny little store manages to stay open at all. This store, filled to the brim with old things, is empty, nevertheless, of people. Well save for the woman at the register, who herself is an old thing. Empty. No one is buying Christmas presents at consignment shops. Hello, she says, as her wrinkled lips part rigidly, and she glances up from her book. It's a quick glance before her eyes return to the story in her hands. We're having a sale on wicker. Let me know if you need help figuring anything out. 
I have no time to even acknowledge her before she travels back into her fiction. She's effectively given the illusion of politeness. She said the right things, but her actions have betrayed her. Sometimes it works the other way, too. Your actions are noble and pure, but your words, they hang you. I've been around for that. This woman has fallen into the former category, though her words were merely lip service, nothing more. If I was to say anything, I'd bet she'd ignore me. I might as well be alone. This old crone, wretched thing that she is, cares only for her book and the things that line her shelves. She's bored and disinterested in people, other people, invested in only herself. Her politeness is some kind of smokescreen to hide rudeness, ugly rudeness, bubbling under the surface, rudeness existing because she doesn't want. She owns her own store, a successful business on a main street. No, she doesn't want because she has, not like me. But I hope one day I can be as rude as this awful bitch, the American fucking dream, that is. I suddenly realize that I can't even tell how long I have been standing in this spot. My skin feels fiery. I try to refocus myself, shrugging off a thought that spirals as such is not an easy task, but I do feel momentarily better as I, spitefully, walk past the goddamn wicker. The septuagenarian at the counter doesn't even notice. What a pity. A moment later, I have arrived at the back of the store, the place where they typically keep the most expensive items. I scan the back wall, hone in on a silvery spot, and rush to it. I carefully begin to pick through the items. Some of the things here I barely even understand. One of the more notable mystery objects is a teaspoon. Well, not quite. It's cut in half lengthwise. At the basin part of the spoon, they've added a piece of metal so that it may still hold liquid. So not a teaspoon, rather an exact half of one. I don't know why it exists. As I watch it in bewilderment, I feel someone watching me, too. I turn back toward the front of the store, but the old woman is still fully absorbed in her book. No, not her. Then what? I glance around until my eyes fall on a small porcelain face to my right. No bigger than a tea saucer. It's the kind of small porcelain face artsy folk buy to hide the identities of their walls. Delicate and sympathetic, I feel as though she understands me. Her eyebrows are pinched upwards at the center, the corners of her mouth drooping downward. She looks beaten down in a way that feels familiar and I wonder if the old woman has been rude to her, too. If she has, then I can't imagine this small face wouldn't hold a grudge. By virtue of the enemy-enemy-friend rule, it appears I have made a friend, one that I would like to rescue, but I have no intention of spending money here. Instead, I raise my index finger perpendicular to the split of my lips and smile faintly. I don't say anything to the woman behind the counter as I exit her store. I won't buy anything from this establishment, not tonight, not ever. I don't support the businesses of rude and disinterested people.
I leave her behind. Maybe I'm being too hard on her. She was just trying to be polite and I cursed her out. It's almost 7.30 now and the place closes at 8. She was probably just tired. Probably worked all day. Maybe she really is just a worker too. Maybe she doesn't even own the place but is forced to sit there and say those things every time anyone walks in the store, and even after she says those things, I bet most people don't even act on the information. I bet most people act just like I did, act like they didn't even hear her. I should go back and apologize for walking past the wicker. That was uncalled for. Despite this thought, my journey is not up to me. The wind pushes me off the stoop, and going back is clearly no longer an option. So I move forward, without will, coaxed on by forces beyond my control. I pray silently for the wind to bring me to new places. I don't bother to wonder about them. I just let myself go, happy to see I am being pushed further from Emperor Chun and Stephen and Samantha, from flavors of the week one, two, and three, from Anthony and Rebecca and Ryan fucking Cooper, my crummy job, Jamie, and my life. It's cold out. The snow arrives a half mile into the next leg of my journey. It comes down in fluffy, loosely packed flakes that cling to me for only moments before they melt on my body and my clothing. I can no longer feel. I've grown numb. It's another mile and a half with the weather getting progressively worse before I hit salvation. Salvation in the form of a Salvation Army. I've never been here, and that fact makes the freezing, numbing, shivering pain completely worth it. If I found myself back at one of my typical haunts, the big stores with layouts that look the same no matter if you were in your hometown or on the other side of the world, I think I would die. I mean, I think I would truly die. I'm sick of old things. Everything is old, except this place. The second place I've been to on this night that is new to me and filled to bursting with old and musty things. Sometimes looking back brings you forward. I gaze out across the store. The fluorescent bulbs hanging overhead struggle to light this dusty place. Cobwebs cling to the illuminated bars and cast long shadows. People squint as they browse the aisles, eyes scrutinizing tags, coats in many carts. I hope some are still left on the racks. However, this place is warm. For now, the numbness is wearing off. I'm still soaked through to bone, but... At least I'm not freezing. It might be 90 degrees in this store, but I don't complain. 
On this particularly frigid and harsh winter night, I welcome air that doesn't bite at the inside of my lungs. Slowly, I begin stumbling through the store. It's an aimless walk that I know ends at the coats, but I'm in no rush to arrive there. In this aisle, pots and pans and incomplete sets of fine china. There's something else here, though. Something that catches my eye and forces me to do a double take. My hand slowly reaches out towards the form, and as the ridges of my fingerprints glide across the smooth silver and grasp, my elbow collapses from obtuse to acute, and there in front of my face is the object, a half teaspoon. I'm bewildered, befuddled, bereaved. I shake my head, Freudian slippage, bemused. I'm wondering now if it might actually be the lost half of the other one I found tonight. I mean, earlier tonight, I had never heard of these little half-teaspoons, let alone seen them. However, now I've been made increasingly aware of some strange underground society, a society of people out there in the world that can't conjecture a half-teaspoon. Or maybe that isn't right. Maybe they are responsible for pulling them apart. Not a society. A cult. Cloaked figures tearing what was once whole apart and asunder. I wish they were together, like they were. But still, what are the odds that I might find them separate in the world on the same night, the odds that I could join them back with each other, the odds that I may render them whole again, one again? To my memory, they're perfect matches. I cradle the mysterious artifact in the palms of my hands, I experience another strangeness. I've been in the store for over five minutes, but apparently my lungs are still quite cold. I can still see my breath. I watch the fog flow out from me. I inhale and hold the breath. I wait. Then finally I look up and exhale. I stare at the slow and curling tendrils of exhaust that rise from my body and travel upwards to those snapping, fluorescent bulbs. A moment later, and I'm passing forgotten prom dresses, then baby clothing. Now that's what I call merchandising, volume 7. I move past some random bits and bobs from the closets of drag queens, garishly clashing colors. I finally arrive at the coats. They are diverse in form and material, but defiantly drab, passively neutral. Something here must be for me. I pass dry and cracking weather jackets, puffy windbreakers, and beat-up old dusters. I stop at the suede. A golden-brown one jumps out at me. Reminds me of one I wore when I was a child. I know it'll be wrecked on the walk home. Water isn't good for suede, but it has a nice heavy flannel for a lining. It's old, but nevertheless obviously warm. There's something painful about it, hanging here, disused. It was meant to give warmth to someone, but for whatever reason it can no longer. 
cast aside with no body to hold. A tag is stapled roughly into the collar, $14. There's also a neon green dot sticker further down on the lapel. I fold the garment as small as I can and tuck it under my armpit. I'm making my way towards the front of the store, towards the register. I scope out the line at the only open one. I walk a diagonal towards two empty lanes that will, once I pass through them, lead me directly to the front door and the parking lot beyond. I can help you with that over here, says a small voice nearby. A small teenage girl is making her way to one of the registers I was about to pass by. My pace slows, then reluctantly I walk up to the checkout counter. I study her as she gets her register up and running. She is soft and sweet but wears the blacked-out armor of every disaffected gothic youth. It's an effort to disguise the girl's inherent tenderness. It almost works. Thanks, I stammer. I was... looking to find someone that could tell me what the green sticker means. She points to a sign by the front door. It almost feels like more rudeness from an uncaring world, but her bell-like voice chimes and puts me at ease. There's a sale today on green dot items, she says with a smile. Lucky you. She manipulates the tag and punches in the numbers she finds on a small calculator. So normally this would be $14, but with the sale, her index finger thumps down on the final key and she raises an eyebrow. It's only $3.50. I sigh. I consider putting it back, but it's a long walk home. God damn shit. That is lucky, I say, as I fish my wallet from my pants with constrained frustration. I finger a five from the darkened pocket and hand it to her. A moment later, she hands me a receipt and a buck twenty-eight sales tax. Stupid shit. She wishes me a good night, and I guess I wish her one back. She seems nice. Nicer than those people I left at Chunes. I hate how fake everyone is. Not like this innocent girl who really cares about me. How badly I wish I could find other people to care for me. How badly I wish I wasn't always alone. I'm back outside now and I'm putting on the coat, finding it a little snug despite it being the right size for me. The ash continues to fall from the blackness above. A nuclear winter. It seems slushier than before, and this causes me to stare out from the curb at a bank on the other side of the parking lot. I can make out the red digits of the sign out front. It's 37 degrees now, quite a bit warmer than it was when I went into the store. Or at least, it seems warmer. I swear, when I was walking before, it had to have been near freezing, maybe below. Now it's practically beach-going weather, and here I am, $3.72 lighter because I bought this undersized piece of shit coat under the false pretense of colder weather. It's no wonder someone threw it out, probably the best fucking decision they ever made. I stuff my hands into the pockets of the coat and trek out across the parking lot, it's slicker than before, and I'm only a few steps out when I slip and land fully in a puddle that seems absurdly deep. Everything happens to Eeyore. 
My knuckles bow up and I pound on the pavement. I feel an old stress fracture on one of my metacarpals sing out a sorrowful tune and my rage subsides, met with the desire to avoid discomfort rather than my resolve to not be angry, to not be the way that I was. I'm kneeling in the snow, in the quiet. I stand up and start again, slower though than before. My weapons bring dampness into my pockets as I reholster them. I walk towards the darkness of a street running perpendicular to the busy freeway. It's a shift in direction not guided by the wind. I guess I'm making a decision. I guess I'm ending the night. Going home. I want to go home. I like being alone. The wind is vicious, doesn't want to let me go. I won't have it. I am wet and tired. I don't want this night to go on. I don't know why I feel this way, why I always feel this way. It feels like razor blades are slicing across my face, and I turn my collar up, bury my chin into my chest. The snow is starting to get heavier, and I slip and slide as I walk, Every change in elevation is a veiled threat of an impending collapse. My parents left the state a few years back. They offered me the house to watch over. They acted like I'd be doing them a favor, but that wasn't it. After everything that happened, after all of my failures, I wouldn't have been able to afford to live on my own. So I moved home. The memories of supposed independence fading with those of her face and voice. Everything she was and what it all had meant. My parents are in Florida now. I guess they're happy. I take care of the house as best I can, but it's a haunted house, and I hate roaming its halls and breathing its airs. I want something new, something better for myself than this tomb. A lot of the worst experiences of my life happened in my old room, all of them except the one that brought me back here, in that room which is now a guest room that I refuse to enter. The monster I am was synthesized. Some evil happened in that room. Some horrible things I try to not revisit. Friendships and relationships ended in heated phone calls. Tears. I take care of the house as best I can, but it's a haunted house, and I hate roaming its halls and breathing its airs. I want something new, something better for myself than this tomb. A lot of the worst experiences of my life happened in my old room. All of them, except the one that brought me back here. In that room, which is now a guest room that I refuse to enter, the monster I am was synthesized. Some evil happened in that room. Some horrible things I try to not revisit. Friendships and relationships ended in heated phone calls. Tears that if collected would drown me. Tears that may have anyways. I tried to stay afloat, but I don't think I rose above it. I think I let it poison me.
and I walked around with that poison dripping from me and let it spill out onto what was good and pure until it died like I died, until it cried like I cried, until it drowned like I drowned. It's been an hour and a half since I started my journey away from the Salvation Army. My feet are numb as I step onto the driveway. It's covered in a solid six inches of snow. I'll call out of work tomorrow and shovel it out. Maybe. I don't know. It might melt. I don't care. I do have to walk back to the restaurant and get my car, though. Can't see spending money on an Uber. I stumble up to the front door, and my hands fumble with the keys, hardly possessing the dexterity to unlock the door. As soon as I'm in, I start peeling the frozen layers of fabric from my body. I'm soaked through and through. I take off my coat and my shoes. I peel my socks off and leave them on the doormat. I peel everything off and leave them on the doormat. I walk down the hallway, past the guest room, and to the bathroom at the end of the hall. My feet stick to the hardwood floor the entire way, peeling from it with every step I take. My breath is before me again, the exhaust. My lungs must be far colder than they were before. The clouds that churn from me are dense, and as I don my old, graying, white bathrobe, I realize that I can't see the world around me quite clearly. Some things don't change. A few moments later, and I am back at the front door. I pull my cell phone and a few other things from the pockets of my pants and plod into the living room. I collapse onto the couch as I unlock my phone. I have twenty or so texts and a few phone calls, too. I wonder if any of them took the coat I left on the chair at June's, but not enough to read or listen to any of these communiques. In fact, I care so little, I toss my phone into the love seat on the other side of the room. I turn the television on and pull up YouTube. I play a random video and ignore it. The sound becomes white noise as I bring the two half-teaspoons from earlier up into my vision. As the halves merge into one before me, I realize they actually aren't that similar. The one from the Salvation Army is far more ornate, far more beautiful, than the one I had found earlier. They don't match. They don't fit. They don't belong together. But still, I think, there must be a match for them out in the world somewhere. At least, I hope there is. I really do. Matching or not, I leave them together on the coffee table. A futile gesture. The final object I grabbed at the front door is the closest thing I have to a friend. She can't leave for she has no legs, can't break my heart without hands to maim it with. She's a pretty face that seems to care for me, pale as the winter moon, pale as bone, 
She stares into my empty eyes as I stare into hers. I hold her as my head slumps to the side and my eyes flutter shut sometime in the night while pacing through the halls of a house that's truly haunted. I feel my hand go empty and the sharp sound of her as she shatters below me. I don't stir. In fact, I sleep deeper because I'm not haunted. I am the ghost. Well, hey guys, thanks for uh, sticking it out with me and listening to my little short story there. Um, It's one that I had written a draft of way back when in college. Um, And a little while ago I picked up I always wanted to rewrite it, and I picked it up, and I I gave it a shot, and I, I liked the way it came out. Um, yeah, I hope that you, uh, hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that you enjoyed this little bonus episode of What's the Story? Um, you know, I, I know, I know I'm no Kayla Kennedy, but I do try, so... I wonder if she'll have any clarifications for this episode. <sighs> I'm nervous. She's going to be like, oh yeah, and here's the thing. Your story was bad. You know, that's going to be cl- the clarification. She'll rewrite it so that it's good. Um, but yeah, no, uh, thank you for joining me. Um, thank you for supporting What's the Story. Thank you for being you. All right. Um, yeah, take care, guys. Have a good week. <laughs>